Hello and welcome to the Data Lab podcast. I'm Joanna McKenzie and I'm Head of Data Science at the Data Lab. So there's an observation to be made if you're familiar with the data industry with regards to the way data has been able to boom because of the confluence of technologies advancing at the same time. More computing power in smaller processes has led to the ability to process data, but it also leads to the ability to generate data. And similarly, Communications technologies allow the general public to take part in building a network of data which can benefit everyone. But computing is not the only place where advances in technology has enabled the collection of valuable data and information. Another example is satellite data. Satellites have come a long way since the space race and have similarly benefited from the advances in computing and sensor technology we've seen in recent decades. Putting sensors and detectors in orbit allows us a higher than bird's eye view of the world that we inhabit, giving us unprecedented information about land use, water use, and the impacts and changes from human and other activities over time. But to really reap the benefits of these technologies, we need to start connecting them with more traditional industries and what really matters to us as a species here on the ground. So today on the podcast, we have Professor Ed Mitchard from Space Intelligence and the University of Edinburgh and Emma Mitchell from Nature Scott joining us on the podcast. Both Ed and Emma participated in the most recent data tech, which was themed for our planet, and they provided us information about a fascinating collaborative process, project rather, which uses space intelligence's satellite data expertise and Nature Scott's on the ground knowledge to provide new insights into Scotland's biodiversity. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having us. Thank you. Brilliant. So before we get started into any depth of the project, let's start with some introductions. Um, so Ed, could you give us maybe a little bit of inf information about yourself and your background, please? Sure. Uh, I'm an environmental scientist based in Edinburgh. I guess I've been working for about 15 years on using satellite data to map the land surface of the Earth, particularly how forests are changing, and how peat bogs in our natural environment, uh, trying to develop methods to map those. Um, and Back in 2017, um, I started up a company with a colleague of mine, Murray Collins, uh, from the university that's grown into uh, Space Intelligence, a company of uh, 12 people trying to kind of take some of those technologies we've developed over the last 15 years and make sure they're, they're more used to help solve the climate crisis. So what way are you at Space Intelligence using this data? And what sorts of projects do you take on? What's your purpose? So I guess there's a, a deluge of free satellite data. There's loads of data being produced and lots of people want the outputs of that, but don't really know how to use it. Um, and we're, the issue we're particularly addressing is around how companies can deal with nature-based solutions um, and governments as well, trying to understand where their natural resources are, how those are changing um, and to kind of target funding to for example, restore peat bogs or uh, save forests from deforestation. So we help people target those projects and then monitor them as they, they go on. Um, there's huge potential for the, the land surface of the earth to help fight the climate crisis uh, by restoring these natural ecosystems that we've destroyed or protecting the ones that are still left. And I guess we feel that satellite data has a big part to play in making sure that happens. That's really interesting. Uh, Emma, would you like to introduce yourself as well while we're here? Tell us a bit about your background and context. Yeah, so I'm Emma Mitchell. I'm a, on a graduate placement currently at Nature Scott. Um, my background is in biology and conservation. So I studied biology at the University of Sheffield. And then I developed an interest in the use of technology and conservation. I went on to study wildlife conservation and drone technology. So I've got a bit of a mix in my background from the sort of 
traditional biology and then going towards a kind of innovative uh, future in conservation as well. Do you find there's any parallels between the drone approach that you've looked at before and the sort of satellite approach that you've used that, that you've been using recently? Um, I think I think there is quite a lot of um, parallels. Yeah, obviously there's a different uh, scale issue there. Drones can be kind of used for more um, high uh, resolution imagery, but they can also be used together. So that's actually something we're looking into um, when looking towards validating the maps. We can use drones to maybe um, validate some of the harder to reach uh, landscapes or to kind of save time in that uh, fieldwork process. That sounds really interesting. And so tell us a bit about Nature School. What, what's it like to work there? What sort of things do you do? Um, yeah, so we do a variety of work at Nature Scott. We um, we are Scotland's nature agency and we're Scottish government's main advisor on all aspects of um, nature, biodiversity and uh, land management. Um, so we do a lot of work on advising on land management because this has a huge impact on um, climate change and biodiversity. And these are our core offers um, to tackle these uh, crises at the moment. Um, so. My team is the Environmental Data and Innovative Technologies team, and we're currently working on a lot of innovative projects and looking on how to uh, use new technology um, in conservation and um, in the kind of environment sector. Sounds really good. So Emma, can we hear from you a little bit about the biodiversity in Scotland? I know you mentioned biodiversity there. So is Scottish biodiversity an important part of our natural and global world then? Yeah, so um, Scotland makes up a very significant uh, contribution to UK biodiversity. Um, we have a high proportion of the UK's upland habitats, um, including its most mountainous terrain. And we've also got species that you can find uh, nowhere else in the UK. So that includes the white script lichen and the Scottish primrose, which are found uh, nowhere else in the world. Um, we're also lucky enough to have some really special habitats that are instantly recognisable, um, like Caledonian woodland, and we've got mountain habitats and peatlands as well. Um, and all these, these habitats in Scotland are vital for biodiversity and the sort of complexity yeah. of life and uh, the natural processes that we are part of. Um, so it's important to remember that biodiversity is not a nice to have, it's a fundamental to human life. And we're also a part of that complex ecosystem uh, and if those foundations start to crumble, um, it has implications for all of us. Um, so Scotland will only be a prosperous nation if it is sustainable um, with the biosphere underpinning the economy and society. And we saw that outlined recently in the uh, Desk of the Review on the economics of biodiversity. That's brilliant. Um, so obviously we're talking about new ways of gathering data and how we can use satellite data in here but before we do that before we did that before we had these options what sort of uh, methods and technologies would we have to use to gather information about biodiversity habitats species success or failures in scotland yeah so um traditionally in scotland um, biodiversity and habitat information was gathered in uh, a few different ways so we've got um in the public domain, we have citizen scientists collecting that information uh, in recording groups under various recording schemes, much of which is submitted to the NBN Atlas, which is run by the National Biodiversity Network. And then we've also got charities and NGOs and local authorities uh, collecting that biodiversity and habitat data, uh, some of which is gathered through data sharing agreements. Um, so in Nature Scott, we collect biodiversity and habitat information 
um, for example, for the surveillance of protected species and habitats or monitoring protected areas and their features, and also for reporting on the status of our import species and habitats at national levels. Um, so in one way or another, these collection efforts involve people going out into the field to record or gather the information, uh, and that can be opportunistic. So just going to an area and recording what's found, or it can be targeted. So where there's a specific species or habitat or area to be sampled and recorded. That's great. Um, so in the run up to starting this project, um, what was the consensus about the state of our biodiversity in Scotland? Were we concerned about it? Were there particular aspects that were people were worried about? Yeah, I think I think nowadays there is unfortunately quite a lot to be worried about. So we've actually have we've got 49% of species that currently live in Scotland which are experiencing a decline in abundance. And there's been a 24% decline in the average abundance of recorded species in Scotland since 1994. Um, so nature's constantly been impacted by climate change and other direct pressures. Um, and assemblages of species are becoming increasingly uniform, sort of generalist domino dominating over the specialists, uh, which will lead to less diversity and a lower resilience uh, to sort of the changing climate and, and other pressures. Um, so natural habitats are under threat from these various pressures that affect the condition and their extent uh, that includes climate change, land use and uh, intensification and also visitor, visitor pressure. So we're in a space now where um, biodiversity has been historically relatively hard to measure, but we do believe it's very important and um, that various species and various habitats across Scotland are, are, are under threat. Um, and there's obviously a lot that we need to do in order to pick that back up. So is that a fair summary of where we were? Um, yeah, I would say I would say that's a fair, a fair summary. Yeah. Um, and then this this kind of led us into the understanding that we require this kind of national overview um, of land cover in Scotland to really help us understand what's going on on the ground as well. Yeah, that's brilliant. I and mean, that brings us back to Ed. So the other part of this whole project is the satellite data that we are now able to access. So let's start by talking about why satellite data has become such an important resource in the last decade or so, maybe even longer than that. I think satellite data has been important since it started being produced in the 70s, uh, really. I guess I would say that as a uh, satellite scientist. Um, but there's been a big change over the last decade. Um, it probably all started with the Obama administration in 2009, which decided to make uh, their big uh, archive of optical satellite data, the Landsat archive, open. Uh, so they used to charge for these. I remember during my PhD having to fill in forms and pay $600 or something for an individual Landsat scene, and you couldn't really see it in advance. You didn't know what you were getting, and it might end up all cloud-covered or whatever. Um, so that was a big barrier to using those data. Um, the US government decided they would get more economic growth out of these satellites that they paid for if they, they made that archive free and open. And others have followed that lead. So the European Space Agency and the European Union, uh, including the UK at the time and since, uh, funded a big program of satellites called the Copernicus uh, program, uh, which are, you'll have heard of Sentinel-1, 2 and 3, perhaps, if you're in this area. Um, these producing masses of optical and radar satellite data since about 2015. It's free and open and it's guaranteed to carry on into the 2030s. 
they've got spare satellites ready they've got two of each in orbit it's an operational system not a kind of experimental systems i guess we had before that means companies like space intelligence and others can kind of build systems based on this free and open kind of regularly provided long-term satellite data and use that to produce products which governments or companies can use um, so yeah we have the data it's free and open we need to use it so what about what would a typical project for space intelligence look like then or a, maybe a, a particularly interesting case study that you've talked about so yeah, I'll talk about this one in Scotland in a bit. I guess a, a typical project for us tends to be in a tropical country um, where we have a, an area that's being uh, either looked at for, for protection from deforestation or an area that's being looked at for restoration. And we will typically map the, the land cover types in that area and going back in time to kind of work out what's been happening in a baseline. And we'll map the carbon stored in that forest using a combination of different satellite data types. Um, but this opportunity came up through a, a Scottish government uh, operation, an option for Scottish government funding um, called AI for, for Good, so using artificial intelligence methods to do a, a good thing for Scotland and chatting away to, to people in Nature Scott, it was clear that their land cover data was, was very out of date and potentially inaccurate and not really usable for the, the purposes, as, as Emma has been describing. Um, we had a particular issue around something called the Natural Capital Asset Index, uh, which Nature Scott produces every year. It's, it's a number. It says how all of Scotland, uh, Scotland's uh, ecosystem services, um, uh, from all kinds of things, from filtering water through to providing uh, places where people can go and enjoy themselves in nature, um, all of that comes into a number that varies based on a number of things, including how much area there is of each habitat. And the numbers they had for that were, were getting very out of date. So we said, well, we can use this expertise we've developed. Uh, around the world um, to map all of Scotland's land cover at a 20 by 20 meter uh, resolution to one of 22 different classes. Um, we can do that every year. We can, we've done it for 2019 and 2020, and we're hoping to get funding to, to carry on doing that. And we'll, we'll make that data free and open so it can be used by Nature Scott, but also by others who are looking at um, potentially restoring or otherwise managing um, Scotland's nature. Um, so we said we could do it and we got the money and then we had to actually do it. So that's actually a really good int introduction to the project there. So you had, there was essentially a benchmark that we were trying to calculate, but it was just getting harder and harder to do because of inaccurate data. Is that correct? Yeah, so data that wasn't really designed for the right purpose. So there's a good land cover map that was done through a lot of manual work uh, in the 1980s, um, based on a lot of ground survey and kind of people drawing on aerial imagery. And then there was some of the classes, Nature Scott had some updates on them. So for example, they got data on forest area from uh, the relevant uh, bodies, uh, Forest and Land Scotland, I suppose it became, um, and they got some information on urban areas and things, but lots of the habitat areas, they had no new information. So they were just staying at the same area they thought they were in the 80s ultimately um, and the numbers weren't adding up they were ending up with more and more total hectares of land in Scotland and Scotland isn't growing so that's clearly incorrect and there was uh, <laughs> worries that some of those habitats which no one was was monitoring and updating the area those numbers might were getting more and more incorrect um, so they needed something to to bring it up to date but also a lot of that that data their areas of land may have been accurate but they weren't a map they were based on a survey approach 
So while they might know how much heat they had, they didn't know where it was. And if you're going to do more than just monitor what's going on, you want to actually intervene and change things or tell people where you could restore degraded fog, uh, for example, you need to know where it is. And that's where satellite data comes in. So Emma, from your perspective then, how did you get involved in the project? Um, yeah, thank you. So I was I started at Nature Scott in, in April, so I've been here for six months now. And I sort of jumped in on a graduate placement. Uh, and the graduate placements at Nature Scott are not kind of, you're not involved in the sort of everyday work. Um, you sort of more focus on to a single project. So my role within this project is developing a methodology for collecting uh, validation and training data for these maps. So we we really like the maps and they're going to be really useful in Nature Scott and we've got some understanding of how they're performing. Um, but we kind of want to know exactly how accurate these maps are. So my job is to develop a methodology to collect ground truthing data, which is essentially checking that what's on the ground is the same as what is seen in the maps. And then also collecting training data, which can be fed back into the machine learning system and improve uh, its accuracy. Um, so we've been looking into using digital data collection platforms such as tablets and um, data collection apps as well um, to collect this data in the field uh, because this has a lot of um, benefits. Um, the data is instantly transferred up to a cloud, uh, can be viewed on the desktop without having to copy it back up. Um, and all of that's a really valuable um, properties to have on a project like this. Um, so I've been doing a couple of data collection trials out in the field over the summer. Uh, I was lucky enough to get up to Craig Meggy uh, National Nature Reserve uh, to trial out some of those methods. And um, we're now sort of building on what we've learned uh, during that, that process and looking how to scale up this methodology from one nature reserve to the kind of the whole country. So what kind of data are we talking about there? Are we looking at visual observations? Are we talking about sensor measurements? Something that I've not thought of maybe? What sort of information are people gathering for this? Yeah, so I can talk you through the kind of um, process so you can understand. Um, so we, we tend to go into the field with a tablet and we've got an interactive a copy of the land cover map on the tablet and it'll sort of track the user's location as they're walking through uh, the landscape. And so the user can then see what habitats they're walking through. We've created um, a sort of um, scatter of randomised validation points uh, that cover a landscape that are assigned within each land cover class. Um, so essentially, uh, somebody will walk up to a, a point and click on the point and it'll tell you what land cover class that point falls within. For instance, broadleafed woodland. Um, the user will then confirm whether that's correct or not. So whether it is broadleaf woodland that is there. Um, they can take pictures of the site. If the classification isn't correct, uh, that they'll enter no, and then they'll enter what um, what it should be. So, for instance, if it was mistaken and it was coniferous woodland, um, and then we can then use the tools within the app to draw around this site and reclassify it um, so that the system can kind of learn from its mis mistakes and uh, improve in the future. 
that sounds really good. Um, and when you're talking about scaling that beyond your first national park measurements, what sort of people would you be needing to take those sorts of measurements for you? Are we talking about qualified rangers? Are we talking about nature Scott staff personnel? Or are we talking about the general public using apps on their phones? Yeah, um, good question. So currently we, uh, we're trialling it just within our small team. Um, and now we're looking into sort of scaling up to nature Scott staff. So we've already got quite a lot of staff on the ground. Uh, whether that's sort of nature reserve managers or habitat surveyors. But eventually we do want to scale it up to citizen science uh, level, uh, the national level, um, because we're going to need a lot of what we call boots on the ground um, to cover this huge, huge scale project. Um, So we'll eventually need to come up with some kind of open source app that's free and accessible to use for the public because the app we're currently using uh is not free um and we'll, we would like to scale up this effort to to a national scale and hopefully get a lot of people across scotland to contribute and get involved in this uh really great great project brilliant um, and ed how does all this data that emma's talking about feed into your process um at space intelligence on this it's kind of the ideal thing to be happening. We love people going out on the ground and giving us, well, not just validating the map, but real ground data. Um, when we were producing these maps, it was during the pandemic. It's very hard for us to get out. So we we're relying on historical nature, Scott, uh, kind of field campaigns, and also uh, a lot of our team and some uh, MSc students from the University of Edinburgh drawing around polygons in aerial fo- photography or high resolution imagery. And that's, that's not the same as being there. These are not simple classes to differentiate sometimes. And the best way to do that is to to be an expert actually on the ground, able to to see what plant species there are and so on. Um, I love the idea of this being done by citizen scientists and and an app. It's something we've we've looked at in uh, some of the tropical areas we work uh, using a a system called Open Data Kit, uh, which we've talked to Nature Scott about, which is an open source system for collecting things like photos and GPS points. You can do little surveys. some experience at the University of Edinburgh doing this uh, with indigenous and uh, non-indigenous communities in uh, in Peru and peatlands there where people can go and uh, find valuable species or say what different locations there are through smartphones and uh, can get some really useful data that way. You can sort of see it being used by school groups on field trips um, as a sort of a cross between citizen science and some sort of a nature observation game so yeah there's lots of potential for making for getting people really involved and I think it's not just about measuring biodiversity is it it's about promoting biodiversity it's about starting to reverse the trends that we're seeing where species are struggling and to keep a foothold on the changing terrain that they have to work with so we have to be part of the solution it's not just enough to measure it and watch it decline in in numbers (laughs) We yeah, I mean, getting people. I love your idea of school groups. That's exactly the, the kind of people we want to get out into the natural environment, understanding what's there, and if they value it in the, the long term, that's what will allow it to be preserved and enhanced. And yeah, we're so lucky with modern technology. Like all of us are carrying around in our pockets a device that's incredibly powerful. It has a, a camera and it's a GPS unit. That's that's all I need to get data all over the place. Uh, so. Rather than us all traveling around the world, we, we love the idea of using local communities to, to go out and take photos and get GPS points with yeah, the systems they already have. It amazes me uh, traveling to some developing countries uh, recently, so just before the pandemic, uh, I was back in Gabon and Peru and even quite remote communities. There is now 3G signal and 
where no one used to have a mobile phone at all. There would be kind of a landline phone or a single mobile phone in a stall in the middle of a village. Now everyone has this technology and we should be taking advantage of that. What do you think, Emma? You think that citizen science could be a, a game or a scavenger hunt for children or... Yeah, I mean, that would be great if we could ever get it to that to that level. I, I was doing quite a lot of research initially about sort of apps like that that already exist. And there's a lot of kind of gamified ones that that really interesting that it would be great if we could have something like that. Um, but yeah, essentially, like getting the public involved and getting them out and about and caring about like the nature on the doorstep, that's that's going to be the thing that kind of um you know, saves the the biodiversity in our sort of local areas. Do you see, I'm going to open this out to either of you to answer this one, do you see there being potential for this sort of project to be replicated outside Scotland? I know you've already talked about some tropical regions, but even just England and Wales and Ireland? Yeah, I definitely hope so. I mean, uh, some of those nations have have quite good land cover maps of their own. Scotland was a bit behind on this, I think, but... um, Yes, I really hope that Scotland can lead the world in terms of all kinds of different aspects of nature-based solutions. It's fantastic that we're we're hosting COP, um, and I think fundamentally Scotland has very large areas of degraded uh, ecosystem. Really, we we should be a forested country, and we're we're really not. We have lots of uh, beautiful uh, highlands that are fundamentally very bare compared to what they would naturally be in terms of tree cover and biodiversity and large mammals. And I suppose. This, these maps are one small part of where technology can help with that, that process of rewilding or restoring or, or doing things to, to restore Scottish ecosystems back to a more natural state. And uh, maybe that will help us in terms of influencing other countries, either to restore their own ecosystems or better still not to, to destroy the natural ecosystems that we still have. It's much easier and much cheaper to keep forests standing than to, to make them come back. That's a very good point. And it's something I was thinking about when you started the conversation at the beginning of the podcast, which was essentially that it's not just about measuring the state of it now. It's also looking at the direction of change in there. And I think if we can get to the point where we're measuring it and we can start to see an uplift in response to maybe some of the initiatives that Nature Scott are already undertaking or other changes in the, the broader world, it would be lovely to be able to measure that geographically and actually see that. And that's what this project offers us, isn't it? It's that ability to see that in that level of granularity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the data are free and open, so anyone can download them from the data.gov site. But we've also at Space Intelligence created a, a web app. If you go to Google Space Intelligence and click on Maps, you, you get it, which lets you explore these maps so you can see how things have changed over from 2019 to 2020 and go and look at an area you know or an area you don't and, and see what the, the land cover types are. And well, Emma will help us revise these maps and make them better, but we'd love to hear from anyone who thinks that's wrong, it should be this. That's great. That's not a, a problem. We know they're not 100% accurate and we, we want to improve this, this mapping. And yes, we're, we're a private company. We think this is, is good for the world. We're a mission-driven company. We want to help uh, transform ecosystems back to a more natural state and stop ecosystem destruction. So we'd love to, to do this type of mapping uh, anywhere that will uh, pay us to do it, I suppose. So Emma, from your perspective, what are, what are the next steps for this project? What happens next? Yeah, so we kind of, we were hoping um, to be able to be in a place where we can kind of repeat this map uh, on a regular, maybe annual basis to really kind of build up this picture of 
change over time uh, across Scotland. Uh, and that information will help us um, advise and uh, formulate land use policy uh, and management and give us an idea also about how uh, Scotland's natural capital is changing um, over time. Um, yeah. Brilliant. Um, so is there anything that you, Emma, to start with, but I'll ask it to Ed in a moment, is there anything in particular that you've learned from undertaking this project that might be beneficial for other organisations who are similarly pushing into new data and new data collection techniques? Yeah, I think um, it's really showed us how um, sort of um, combining the experience that we have in the public sector with the innovation in the private private sector can be a really a really great um, collaboration. So and just got um, we kind of knew what the problem was and what what data we needed, um, but it was great to work with Space Intelligence, who already had the artificial intelligence and the satellite mapping skills. Uh, to create the maps and yeah it's been a really great successful partnership and um, we hope we can continue to work together and develop the maps further and so that they can help us uh, understand land use and develop policy and a lot of extra applications in the future. Thank you very much and Ed is there anything particular you've learned from this project that you think might be of interest to people listening on on the podcast today? Yeah, I guess similarly, it's been a very positive experience from, from our side. It was really nice having a, uh, a kind of public sector body, which was close to our heart, based in Scotland, um, come to us with a problem that we felt we could solve, help us find the money to, to solve that and then produce these, these maps that have been very widely used. So yeah, it's been very positive and they're carrying on working on these and helping us improve the next generation. So it's been great. Um, as a company, we learned a lot from, from mapping Scotland. It's quite a difficult ecosystem to map. There's lots of to be honest, lots of different types of non-tree ecosystems that look quite similar. We have grass that may or may not have people on it, that may or may not be, be wet and boggy and going into heath and different types of things with very similar vegetation on top. So we really had to take advantage of all the different types of satellite data, look at the same place lots of different ways through the year and using different different wavelengths and so on to be able to differentiate these, these different ecosystem types. It was a useful learning process for us as a company. Um, I've kind of talked about a more typical project for us in the tropics where we might have five or six classes, kind of forest, degraded forest, water, uh, farmland, that kind of thing. Um, whereas here we had 22 classes to differentiate. So it kind of pushed our, our technology and our machine learning a bit further. And that's been very useful for us. Yeah, sounds really good. Um... Okay, so I think we've gone right the way through that really interesting project. It's been a real pleasure talking to both of you. Um, it's really good to hear more about your collaboration and how that sort of public sector, private sector, we've both been able to bring your expertise to bear on this problem. Um, and I think there's so much potential in satellite data and this new open data set, this Sentinel data coming through. I'm sure we'll hear an awful lot more about that in the next few years. So thank you very much if you've been listening and um, for coming with us on the journey. I hope you find it a very interesting example of how data can not only measure the world, but also help us to learn how to change it. So thanks again for listening in. I hope you'll join us again for another Data Lab podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having me. Great.